The idea that we're going to today in 2022 create an immutable system that will work forever with no changes is ridiculous, right? Um, every system that's ever been made has been changed a lot. Uh, Ethereum's a lot different than it was when it started. Bitcoin's a lot different than it was when it started. There's nothing that will work without change and be adopted and used long-term without change. However, you can get it so that the procedures for chains are less subject to abuse. Welcome to Layer Zero. Layer Zero is a podcast of unscripted conversations with the people that make up the Ethereum community. Crypto is built by code, but it's composed by people. And each individual member of the crypto community has their own story to tell. Cypherpunks understood that the code they write impacts the people that use it. And Layer Zero focuses on the people behind the code because Ethereum is people all the way down and it always has been. Today on Layer Zero, I'm talking with Kirk Hutchison of Volt. And Volt is a inflation hedge stablecoin. It's a stablecoin that is hopefully designed to uh, restore and retain its value as inflation goes up and up and up, which is a very timely conversation. However, we don't actually start the conversation there. Kirk has been uh, recommended to me by many, many different people from across the DeFi ecosystem with universal, universal consensus about this gigabrain nature of this guy, Kirk. Uh, and so in order to meet this guy, Kirk, and, and uh, get to know why everyone respects him, I just decided to pull him straight onto a podcast. And so we dive down the rabbit hole of some very primitive DeFi concepts that we haven't really revisited in Bankless for a very long time. This concept of no magic numbers when we design our, our DeFi protocols. Anything arbitrary in a DeFi protocol is fragile. And if it's fragile, it's going to break. Uh, and so we talk about that concept. We, he also is very, very attuned to the world of monetary policy and, and economics uh, and trying to apply the lessons of TradFi and like economic history into the lessons of DeFi. So rather than this being like a more typical Layer Zero episode where I'm actually trying to go into like the soul and personality of our guests, this is me just trying to figure out how uh, Kirk thinks and what he's trying to do and what does what he prioritizes, And I find a ton of alignment with what he is building, how he's building it and what he's modeling it after. Uh, and so I hope you guys follow me down this rabbit hole of understanding Kirk and also understanding Volt's Volt and seeing where all of this goes uh, when the ecosystem that Kirk uh, envisions for the, for the DeFi ecosystem uh, comes to fruition. So let's go ahead and get right into the show right after we get to some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Bankless Nation, I'm here with Kirk Hutcherson, co-founder of Volt Protocol. And Kirk has been universally recommended me from by a number of people who I know and trust in the crypto space. Uh, the word gigabrain uh, has been used a number of times to describe Kirk. Uh, I don't know where this conversation is going to go, but I have a feeling it's going to be a good one. Kirk, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, David. I'm really excited to be here and um, you know, flattered by the kind words that people have said of me. I've definitely am like, you know, kind of a theory cell as far as crypto stuff. I come from a very mechanism nerd, like look into the history, look into all the nitty gritty of it. Um, and I feel very grateful for the opportunity to build and practice that now. Um, but um, yeah, that's how I introduce myself. Fantastic. Yeah, crypto definitely offers a blank slate for thinkers to begin to tinker. Uh, so like, uh, oh, I like that line. Uh, thinker is going to tinker. Uh, so as a, as a thinker, Kirk, what do you think about? What, what, what are the subject matters that you often uh, ideate in your imagination? Well, the thing that got me into crypto in the first place was, like many people, in general, the idea of censorship resistance, not just money, um, you know, things like social networks as well. Uh, and I took a brief sojourn trying to be a Solidity dev. I was never a particularly good one, although I gained useful insights by trying to learn that. Um, 
I became fixated after a while on the problem of scalability in governance and how, you know, if you look at like token governance models today, such as MakerDAO, how they decide to tune parameters in the system or add new collaterals, there's quite a bottleneck of attention. Uh, you know, the attention of the whole DAO at one time is not very scalable. And so I was thinking a lot about that problem, especially in the context of stable coins. And that's what drew me to Fuse and, you know, Rari Capital and the Tribe DAO ultimately uh, was looking at more permissionless lending markets and thinking, how could you govern deployment of PCV or, you know, lending capacity in one of those markets in a more scalable market-based approach? And that was what was my original idea that let, was behind Vault. Uh, there's been quite a journey since then and a lot of other elements. And the scope of the problem for me has expanded into the question of really how can you correctly make a decentral bank? Uh, you know, the fully symmetrical currency and credit markets and everything, you know, all the types of things that people need banks for uh, in a totally transparent on-chain way that is governed ideally by markets and not by votes. Uh, because the votes are where it gets sticky. Um, and think anything that is like asynchronous decision-making, not very ideal uh, for like a continuously running open system. That's why Ethereum or blockchains are so good is because they don't go down or they're not supposed to, right? There's always, always there and it can't be disrupted. Um, so having some of the principles about what makes L1 so good and thinking about, can we take that um, into these you know applications and you know make further strides in the design is really what I'm obsessed with and how we could, um, yeah, I, I'm inspired a lot by what exists. I also am inspired a lot by TradFi and learning about everything, how that works. And I think that there's a lot to learn uh, as far as building those functions, but not necessarily in the same package uh, on chain. Yeah, I have a feeling this is going to be a pretty uh, brainy and uh, technical show. So I definitely, as we go along, want to take some time to define some stuff uh, and to make sure that all the listeners are keeping up with us. Uh, you used a term which I have not heard in a very long time, a decentral bank. Uh, now, that term, a decentral bank, is something... Um, I think I think I might have memed this thing in 2018 when I was first getting into the world of content production and using it to describe MakerDAO. It was like I understood MakerDAO at the time to be like a, a version of a central bank, as in it controlled interest rates, it had a monetary policy, it had like assets and liabilities, uh, but it was decentralized. And so like, well, how do you talk about these things? Well, like, let's call it a decentral bank. Meme never really caught on. But I think uh, as we extrapolate from 2018 to where we are now, I think what you're leaning into is like, there is a more... Rather than MakerDAO being the decentral bank, there is the concept of a decentral bank. And MakerDAO is now just like one flavor of that or one implementation of that. And I'm getting the idea that Volt is an alternative flavor of a decentral bank. But before we go into Volt, can you talk about the concept of a decentral bank? You use some other words that, that I'd like you to define as well, as in a fully symmetric currency. That one left a question mark in my head, as well as asynchronous votes. So can we talk about like the model of a, a decentral bank for a model, uh, and then talk about those two uh, dynamics of a, uh, components of decentral bank, symmetric currencies and asynchronous, asynchronous votes. Can you talk about those things? That sounds great. So if we, I think maybe we should start by just asking about like, in a modern context, what is money? And since pretty much, you know, at least the industrial revolution, money means either a currency issued by, you know, a central bank, um, or maybe a deposit at a bank that issues its own independent notes. Um, and usually, 
this represents some kind of like a hard money value, you know, which could be gold, it could be central bank notes. And there's an understanding that the bank is taking part of that capital and loaning it out, you know, and they have some portion of basically hard money reserves, and then they have a loan book. So not everything is fully liquid, and they have to manage, um, you know, the liquidity within the system to ensure the price is stable. This is what central banks do too with bond markets and all that. Um, but it existed with private banks too. Uh, and this is, you know, we could get into what is a bank in the gold standard, which is a little different. We won't worry about that for, for right now. Uh, but the idea that users need convenient media of exchange, exchange media, uh, you know, so like you don't want to hold gold bars, right? You want dollar bills or now you don't want that. You want just want a credit card or a debit card. Um, and so users need to deposit their value with some kind of an institution that provides those convenient exchange media. And there's other functions that the bank does as well, which is that different people have different time preferences with their money. You know, you might have money that you need to spend tomorrow, but then you have money you don't need for five years or whatever. And you're willing to have different levels of liquidity on those funds in exchange for getting some return. And likewise, there's people who need to borrow money. And so those are all the things that a bank does. Uh, you know, and there's lots of, and along with that, banks also do deals with other banks where they buy and sell these types of debts. And so that essentially, and, and that latter function is what the Federal Reserve and central banks have kind of taken over. Like they control and regulate how the banks can relate with other banks and other various rules. But even before central banks existed, it's natural for banks to have things like, oh, if lots of people come to redeem from them and they run out of liquid reserves, that they would borrow from another bank to get what they need uh, and have those kind of deals in place. Uh, and these types of ideas are being brought up in DeFi by others as well. Um, like Seb Ventures from MakerDAO, uh, someone I respect a lot. And he posted a blog post describing like a clearings DAO where stablecoin issuers could draw credit from each other like using their own stablecoin as collateral when they had liquidity needs, for example. And I think that these type of structures can be very informative for DeFi. So when I think about a decentral bank, I say, to me, what is the problem with money on chain today? You know, if we look at L1 tokens like ETH and Bitcoin, the problem is that they're too volatile to be short-term money. You know, uh, and I don't think that's a, ever going to change. Um, they could be thought of as the equivalent of like, you know, the highest quality equities right in the future, um, or like other. There's other or entirely new ways of thinking about valuation, but they're not exactly the same thing as cash. Um, now, stable coins. At the end of the day, all stable coins basically either depend upon a not necessarily sustainable incentives model or on centralized stable coins in order to maintain a stable backing. And there's nothing that's like a conclusive exception to that that's shown to be highly scalable so far. And we can see clearly the disadvantages of depending on like, I'm not someone who's like a PSM hater necessarily, you know, I under, it's good that DAI has the PSM, but it's not good to stay that way forever. And they're working on it, right? You know, like MakerDAO is all over trying to diversify out of USDC risk, but can you define a PSM? PSM is a peg stability module, and the for a simple thought about decentralized stablecoins, you could either be doing over collateralized lending where they're minted against an you know over collateralized position of ETH or other assets, or you could mint it directly against another stablecoin in a PSM, uh, which is a peg stability module. So, and not everyone would call it a PSM, but it's the same thing, like how. You know, the portion of frac supply, which is backed by USDC, is analogous to a PSM type of operation. Um, and then let's see. So when I think about a decentral bank, I think that all of these things that banks do, like 
accepting deposits and loan origination, you sort of, it's going to be very, you can't leap all the way there in one step, you know, these decentralized systems to have a, the equivalent of TradFi instantly. Uh, but if we start to learn from these, I think it's possible to build a more resilient and decentralized stablecoin systems, especially if like you can, if you can cut out centralized middlemen in the right way, you know, like with USDC circle controls, everything we can see other things like how Lido manages the validators uh, or how MakerDAO is looking at then doing direct deals with different entities like bond offerings. Those things all can help mitigate counterparty risk, but having a really like, to me, it's it's still done on like a case by case basis. You know, what I mean, there's no like clear, transparent framework for how MakerDAO will scalably decide what kind of real world lending it will do without just relying on like an inside group of experts. Uh, and so, figuring out decentralized and market based approaches for these things um, is one of my big goals. And when I said a fully symmetric stablecoin, I guess what I meant is one that has a a match between both being able to um, to match make between those who wish to deposit their capital in the stablecoin system and receive stable value and some yield, and those who would allocate that capital and the lending opportunities that exist in a way that is fully market-based and the rates are derived from the market. You know, utilizations, similar how Kava and Compound have utilization-based rates, um, but connecting that into a wider variety of activities, potentially even including real-world assets. Because, you know, I am a... I say I'm decentralization mostly rather than decentralization maxi because I do think that getting that last mile into the real world is very important. And we can't just, if, if, if the best decentralized systems, because they're too purist minded, drop the ball on the last mile and then just let the scams and, and such go direct to the people, um, that is not a good out ending. And like when I look at how big like Terra and UST got and then look at like how little attention is given to even you know, the more ex promising, like pure, radically decentralized experiments like Rye, um, I just think that for Volt, at least it's one of my goals to really be proactive in that regard, at least. Uh, and we can learn from, um, yeah, I like what Seb at MakerDAO thinks about, you know, like there are ways to, to get at close to the purity of a smart contract through the legal system, not 100%. But um, like we shouldn't be close minded to the idea that there can be other consensus layers besides one blockchain, right? And a settlement layers and being in general, the perspective of looking as holistically as possible at the how blockchain can fit into the world economy and in the taking a long term view over five, 10 years, right? And how lending markets and capital markets can evolve. That's all the type and a, and a historical perspective of how they've changed otherwise, like there's been many big changes in the world, capital and financial markets in TradFi in the last 30 years, 40 years. Um, and so understanding how digitization has affected them and then like looking at the arc of how things will go. Um, I think that there's a, I might be rambling a little bit now, but I think that there's a lot of significance to, um, you know, going to the kitchen and stealing the chef's secrets for TradFi, uh, taking the best out of it. And then, um, but keeping those, robust decentralization and censorship resistance features. Uh, and, but that's what's like, a, you know, it threaded the camel through the eye of the needle, right? Uh, so you have to be, it's not an easy task, but that's the problem space. 
Okay, so yeah, there's a number of different rabbit holes that I think just opened up. And, and the first one, I think, uh, at the beginning, you talked about like all these different stable coins that we have on Ethereum, Frax, Stai, USDC, Tribe. Uh, and I think you kind of alluded to how there's not really ever going to be any one single perfect winner of like the stable coin uh, systems. But the, the net result, once we have what kind of feels like a commercial banking layer of private monies where we have like the MakerDAO making DAI, we have the the Tribe commercial bank making Tribe, we have the USDC commercial bank and doing USDC. Once we have all of these, this commercial banking layer, and and what I, what I mean by that, just to be super clear, is that in the TradFi world, we have the Federal Reserve, which is the bank zero of the whole entire thing. And then layered on top of that, you have the commercial banking layer, the Wells Fargo's, the you know JP Morgan's, the Goldman Sachs that have accounts at the Fed, and they trade and, and market make between each other, but then ultimately everything settles down to the Fed. And I think what you alluded to is that if we do want a fully decentral bank, it's not going to be MakerDAO that wins. It's not going to be Tribe that wins. It's not going to be USEC that, that wins. But rather, it's going to be an emergent product out of the interrelationships between all of these things. And that's when we, when we get the network of those things and these financialization networks between all of these stable coins that are mostly decentralized for the most part, with the exception of USEC, which is completely centralized. Um, then at that point in time, we actually do get this like emergent decentral bank that unlocks this like bankless future that we're all looking for. Am I on track with this like, general thesis here? That's absolutely right. It's sort of like, you know, the movie, The Incredibles, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, if everyone's special, no one is, right? It's like, if everyone's a bank, then no one is. That's the bankless right. future right. <laughs> that, I, that I see is democratizing access to the kind of powers that banks have. And, you know, you can... And, I expect there'll be many more bank-like entities of varying degrees of centralization, you know, and from the spectrum of full decentralization, immutable smart contracts to, you know, just circle, but in a different legal jurisdiction and a different, um, you know, different backing exposure. And I see there being a, a wide diversity and them having, yeah, the more interlock networked they are, the more resilient the system can be. And I'm really inspired. I'll shill a little bit. Uh, my favorite, um, living economist George Selgin, who has written a lot about like the Scottish free banking era and some historical periods of robust banking networks that did not rely on a central bank. And you know, there's interesting things to learn from there as far as how they manage liquidity crisis or currency also for the um, from a DeFi perspective. But I think there's yeah clear historical and theoretical evidence that a central bank actually um, generally contributes instability rather than stability to the system and that a decentral network will be far superior. Cool, I definitely wanna go into that. But also I want to just like double, t uh, double tap on the uh, uh, f fully sy symmetric money system. I might be wrong on this, but like my, the way that I'm trying to understand this is like, if we talk about like Terra Luna, for example, I, I'm guessing that that is a fully non-symmetric uh, money system, as in it is extremely lopsided and it was so lopsided that it collapsed. And like the idea that I'm, I see you nodding your head, so I think I'm on the right track here, uh, is that like when when Terra, like Nick Harder had this tweet about Terra Luna that I really liked, where uh, he said the day that Terra sold off UST to purchase Bitcoin to have Bitcoin on the balance sheet was the start of the collapse. 
because they took they it was a lopsided system. They took away liquidity out of UST to buy Bitcoin in in hopes to like, okay, we're gonna have this Bitcoin to like defend the peg one day. Not realizing that like if you sell UST to buy Bitcoin, you are causing the depegging of the UST. You are taking weight away from one side of the market and and you're you're adding a bunch of selling where you are not creating enough buying. Uh, and so with, if, I, if I'm understanding like symmetric versus asymmetric monies, it's when there's like the, there's the unequal buying and selling is like kind of my general understanding for that. Uh, and so if we have like money crises, it's because there is an imbalance in money. And so if you if you are telling me that like the, the dollar, for example, or the way that currencies generally maintain their peg is being bisymmetrical, where there's like efficient, sufficient market participants on both sides, you have both depositors and creditors, right? You and these things are balanced enough, and the markets are efficient. That makes a symmetric money, which is a which is for in a stablecoin purposes going to hold its peg if it's symmetric, if it's sufficiently well balanced. Am I on track here? Yes, and and you know, symmetric was was off the cuff. There might be other ways to describe it, but the so and of course, Terra had many other problems, but in general, there's a there's a general class of problems we could talk about, and it applies to every stable coin that exists today, is that there's no such thing as a stable coin whose backing is 100% instantly liquid for dollars, right? Uh, and so what that means is that for every stable coin, there's a condition under which it might trade not at peg. Um, and for some stable coins, those conditions are extremely remote. Um, for some of them, they are very likely. And the, the worst failures of PEG will always occur when people don't know what's going to happen. And so in the case of, um, I'll, I'll bring in one of the examples from this Scottish banking period. Uh, it was a common feature of many, you know, so these banks would issue notes, right, in exchange for gold, you know, gold deposits, and the note would be in, in, in principle redeemable for a certain amount of gold, um, although the bank was fractional reserve. And some of these notes came to carry what they call an option clause. And the note said that this bank is either redeemable in gold on demand or from the moment you brought it in, payable in gold at a certain interest rate in this much time. And so by putting this clause on the note, the bank notes, it gave people the confidence that at least if they couldn't get their money right away, the bank was solvent and they would get a certain interest rate. And so and that also meant that if the bank had a liquidity crisis, those notes converted into bonds and then had a higher value, right? And so it kind of, you can see a similar principle at work to, you know, an AVA or compound when lots of people want to withdraw their money, you know, the interest rate goes up to incentivize people to close their loans or more deposits to be made. Uh, and so that's like a very responsive and symmetric system. Uh, and it facilitates matchmaking of those who want more yield and those who want liquidity. And so you can't necessarily guarantee that a stable coin will always hold peg with a system like this, but it should make any discount more rational and limited, right? So um, if you know, like in the case of DAI, because people know it is over collateralized, even in a case where more than half the DAI supply had to unwind and they depleted the PSM, it's not going to go that much below peg before people then refill the PSM by ARBing because uh, they're confident since it's over collateralized. And so the knowledge in... Um, the knowledge of the mechanism by which it would return to peg or the mechanism, the amount of haircut you might take if you need instant liquidity demand, making that as clear as possible uh, and predictable for the participants makes the system more stable. So one of our you know, things we're thinking about a lot is 
if you have a stable coin that's has a significant illiquid backing component. Um, let me take a step back. Have you checked out uh, Interest Protocol? No, I have not. It's the new kind of Compounder Ava style market with a native stable coin that was released recently. Um, GFX Labs was behind it. And the idea of a stable coin that is responsive on these kind of same yield curves makes a lot of sense uh, as Ava and Compound. But then the question is, if you're going to bring in, let's say, more PSM or real world type of assets or do these kind of, um, you know, loans or bond stuff that MakerDAO is considering, how do you do the right feedback between that and the interest rate that you're giving out on the stablecoin? And how can you do a, a market mechanism also to decide like how liquid the stablecoins backing should even be? Like if you ask me, should the stablecoins backing be 99% liquid? Should it be 50% liquid? That's not something I want to arbitrarily decide, right? That's something that a market should decide somehow. And you can look at like the FRAX collateralization market process. It's something kind of similar like that. And in this case, it would be like not choosing how under collateralized it is, but maybe just how illiquid it is. Um, that kind of idea. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Um, so just to, just to go and, and define like what makes a good resilient stablecoin. All stable coins that are going to be robust, resilient, anti-fragile, like in, you know, sustainable, have to have what you call symmetric marketplaces, as in like you know, a, a balance, right? Is that, that that's part of the definition here? Yes, and and this idea of symmetry is really it's about liquidity. That's what I would emphasize right. is that there needs to be a two-sided liquidity marketplace, and not just like fixed rates. Uh, anywhere where there's fixed rates or things that are not responsive, there's problems. That's why when MakerDAO has to go in and manually tune the, the interest rates, right, that's less than ideal. The curves on Oven Compound are better. The anchor fixed rate was a problem. And we have, in fact, realized that the idea of pegging Vault to a fixed rate of the CPI is also a problem. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely get into that. Um, actually, actually, no, let's go down that rabbit hole right now. Can you just illustrate, like, why, why is fixed rate a problem? Like, we, we see this right now in the uh, Japanese bond market, I believe, where I think there's something like a cap on like the yield of the bond market. They have yield, co yield curve controls of like 0.25%. So they're fixing their whole entire bond market. Can you, can you explain why a central bank would do that and what problems are, uh, arise as a result? So central banks generally serve political ends. That's what I would emphasize and that I don't always know why they do what they do um, because it doesn't always necessarily look like the best idea. <laughs> um, in this case of the, the Bank of Japan, if we just at a basic level ask what is the effect of very low interest rates on the economy is that it makes borrowing cheaper. And the reason that they might want to make borrowing cheaper is because there's lots of what you might call zombie companies in Japan's economy that are heavily indebted and don't have strong growth prospects such that if rates rose, they would collapse. Uh, and this is the case of the United States economy as well, but it's significantly worse there. So if rates go up, um, it would lead to significant social disruption. And so that's what they don't want. Uh, and it's, but at the end of the day, it's like an incentivized system. It's being propped up by the central bank. They can't keep it that way forever. Um, so oftentimes keeping it that way longer doesn't make things better when you ultimately need to change. And, you know, that was the case for Terra, right? Like, um, I mean, the fact that it's unbacked in the first place means it won't work. But even if it wasn't unbacked and if it was instead just like, imagine like we'll offer this 20% yield and then we'll go and like, I mean, even just look at something like Celsius, right? And that's a more, um, 
you know, if you're like, we'll go offer 8% yield and then we'll go stake ETH and it's locked up for a year. It's like, well, <laughs> what if they want to get out? Uh, and then if you don't have a clear marketplace to sell off your illiquid collateral in some way in order to, or give people like a defined haircut on exit and that they knew up front what it would be, um, you get panic and bank runs and chaos. Right. Okay. So when, going back to the symmetry thing, uh, is it the supply of the outstanding dollars for whatever this bank that we're going to talk about, whether it's MakerDAO, Tribe, whatever, the supply of the outstanding dollars needs to be balanced by the available liquidity. And when that, when those things are balanced, is that is that like the symmetry that we're looking for here? As in, like if there's a uh, if there's like a billion dollars, there needs to be like. 10 times more liquidity than a stablecoin that's only $100 million. And it's that that's liquidity that is like, if there's sufficient liquidity, then the peg will be sufficiently defended. Yeah, to an extent, although I would say, I'm not sure what the right liquidity ratio is, but it certainly right. does scale with right. the size of the system. And then right. the other thing is that um, there needs to be a feedback mechanism. That's the most mm -hmm. important thing is that there has to be, when it, like, and this, this happens with, I'll give an example of how Frax works, uh, where there is a feedback mechanism. Like, if I go and you know redeem some Frax, I get a certain amount of USDC and a certain amount of you know FXS. And as I do that, the Frax system adjusts slightly its preference in the direction of being more collateralized. So as redemptions occur, it will seek to become more collateralized in response. Um, now, overall, I'm a you know a pro over collateralization individual, um, that's for sure. But um, nonetheless, you know, we can learn good mechanisms from everywhere. And the, the fact that there's any system variable that is fixed and can never change, that means that there's probably a market condition in which that's wrong. Uh, and so that's the kind of the insight that I've arrived at. And, um, you know, and needing to change it by a vote is also probably wrong, because sometimes things happen fast. And um, it'll be much more smooth if it can be according to a curve or a market process. Okay, this yeah, this opens up uh, something I, I, I'm always been fascinated about in the crypto space. Um, Amin Soleimani, one of my one of my personal heroes in this space. I say that every single time I bring bring him up. Uh, gave out this line in 2017. I think it was a tweet or it was on a podcast or something. And uh, uh, he actually doesn't remember saying this. Uh, and so <laughs> uh, he said that he said the line, "No magic numbers," uh, and while I was only very young in my like career down crypto, like I understood that line, uh, like into, as soon as he said it, like no magic numbers. And what he meant by that is like, if you, if a human just chooses a number, a parameter, and it, it's just like arbitrarily chosen, uh, that is the definition of something that is not anti-fragile. It is, it is literal fragility because it's a fixed number. If it's something is fixed, it's fragile. And so if we are trying to make, uh, a censorship resistant, human resistant, like uh, long term sustainable uh, uh, financial systems. We can't just be picking arbitrarily arbitrary numbers. It has to be a dynamic sy system that can respond to the inputs and outputs uh, that are around it, right? And so this is where this is always where crypto starts to look a lot more like nature more than it does finance. I mean, definitely it looks like finance, but like it borrows properties from nature. 
And so there are a number of systems out there, like you've already talked about the dynamic interest rates of Compound and Aave. As the utilization of these assets inside of Compound and Aave go up, the interest rates go up. And what that means by that is like if there's if Aave has 100 ETH deposited into his vaults, uh, like people have supplied 100 ETH and no one is borrowing anything, well, then the interest rates on that ETH are basically zero because we wouldn't need to incentivize people to borrow it. As that number goes up, it goes, to, it goes up slowly at first, like 10 ETH gets borrowed, so interest rates go up a little bit. 20 ETH gets borrowed, so interest rates go up a little bit. If we get up to 80 ETH borrowed out of the 100 ETH that's deposited, the interest rates that are being charged uh, by the uh, borrowers goes up a lot. Uh, because at some point, if you hit like 99 ETH that's borrowed out of the total 100 ETH that's deposited, there's no more liquidity in the system. Uh, we got one ETH left. Uh, and so we have to dynamically increase this interest rate to naturally balance out this marketplace and incentivize more deposits or to incentivize people to repay their yield. A similar system, also part of uh, RAI, RAI the stable coin, is like a, this governance, it's, it's called a, what is it called? Uh, Basically, like control theory, it's, it's like a natural governor. Uh, Kirk, can you just talk about this dynamic of like a self, self ref, self-referential feedback mechanism and how it can take us from like a fragile version of finance to an anti-fragile version of finance? Yeah, I think that let me just put, think about for a second about the best way to put it in words. Here's a I like to give people very concrete examples. So let's think about this. You and I um, are you know we have two avocados between us. <laughs> One of them is ripe today and one will be ripe tomorrow. And we each have $1. So the question is, um, yeah, or yeah, there's an avocado seller yeah, present. How much is the one ripe avocado worth and how much is the unripe avocado worth? It's a good question, how do we decide, right? Because I don't want to overbid on my avocado, right? And so yeah, we get very quickly into the questions of like, how does market pricing work? And at the end of the day, most likely the avocado seller sets a price because he exchanges with many people or who knows what happens, but any system needs some way to regulate. Otherwise, what if, you know, I get word before you that the avocado is there and I run to the store and, and buy it, undercut you. Um, and this is, you know, these kind of examples are what happens when there's like, you know, a liquidation failure in a lending market. Um, you know, you know, something doesn't happen at the right speed when it could have been sold for the right price, but it wasn't. Um, and so you, even if you do have a, you know, there's always a chance that something could still be mispriced, right? Even if you do have feedback loops, but the, sorry, I'm, I'm jumbling my words. I think we need to step one step back and just ask like, what is a market? And if we understand that what a market is in general is like an information system where there's the whole economy and like, how does someone decide what something is worth to them? It's based on their own needs. And so based on their own needs, they'll pay the best price they can figure out for what they're going to get. You know, I have, I have my income. I have to decide what I'm going to spend it on. And those prices propagate into the economy and the market, and they inform the sellers and other things. And it all comes together to be expressed in the prices, which are an information signal. And when you have like a... Um, in order to have a market, you need the ability for the free exchange of this kind of information. And the easier it is for people to, you know, connect economically, the more efficient the market will be. So running on a blockchain that's 24-7 global, always online, 
you know, where anyone can be a market maker or a liquidator compared to these opaque TradFi systems, it's much smoother. Uh, and for lending and borrowing, that's why it's the difference between like, um, you know, and I'll critique, uh, this is a stable coin that I kind of like, but there's one thing I don't like about it, um, which is LUSD, the fact that it has a fixed fee on minting and no ongoing charge. Right. Right. Um, introduces instability into that system. Uh, and if the, the, the fact that it is instead a um, liquidation only model that's just based on like you have to top up your collateral, um, it means that incentives are applied in a more staccato way, you know, like when the liquidation actually occurs instead of a smoothly adjusting rate. Um, and so you can see that like it means like traders in crypto will often like to look at where the liquidation walls are, right? A lot of people will have their position at that spot. Um, and probably we can do a lot better with like automatically regulating these things. Like people are already working on like DeFi saver type of stuff that will automatically adjust your collateralization to be responsive to the market movements, right? So that's another type of feedback that's very beneficial for the users where you don't want to just be like, or like even I'll draw an analogy to like Uni V3. Right, it's more of a market of opinions because instead of just being stuck to like, oh, it's this price and this curve only, you can say, oh, well, I'll put whatever curve I want, right? And it's my opinion, uh, and then I can change it in the future too with flash liquidity provision on different curves. Um, anything that allows like more granular market choices and also brings people together into like a smooth place where they can all exchange in the market together will make things less risky and better. And this is observed in TradFi too. Uh, I was just reading a book, um, I got involved in a little uh, DeFi, you know, DeFi slash meets TradFi reading group. And the first book of the week was an introduction to repo markets, which I found um, very well written and talks about some historical perspective of how like, and just for the listeners, a repo market is one of the main types of like, quote, low risk TradFi yields and banks do it and all kinds of things. And it's basically like, let's say I'm a stock trader and I have some Home Depot stock and I want to leverage up on it. I the, do an over collateralized loan, basically just like Compounder Ava with the bank, where I give them you know hundred dollars of Home Depot stock, they give me a fifty dollar loan at a you know half percent or one percent interest rate, and then I go do whatever I want with that. I either short Home Depot to hedge or I lever up whatever my my plans are. Um, and this is a huge you know huge huge market that only really came into existence. Um, I know the UK market was created in the nineties. That's not that long ago, and the motive of creating it and like legally allowing it. Because before it was like only banks can do these types of deals. And then they made a market where like, oh, no, any like firm can do it because their goal was to reduce the volatility in the bond markets and allow people to like hedge their positions in that. And it worked. Uh, and the bond markets grew after that. Uh, and so you can see that making a place where people can like trust how the rules work and more people can participate grows the pie for everyone. And so that's one of the things that's, of course, really exciting about DeFi when you think look in the long term. Certainly. Okay, so I think we've talked a lot about some just big ideas, right? Like um, resiliency through multiple decentral banks. We got we talked about control theory and how that keeps things balanced uh, if the parameters are tuned right, uh, tuned in a dynamic fashion. I, I want to start to get into some more specific things about like the current state of DeFi and the problems you see in the current state of DeFi and how we get it to that future that you just alluded to, where like the pie is very very big, uh, and so like. How how do we what what why what parts of DeFi are preventing the the pie from getting a lot larger that are, are like consuming your brain space like what what are the problems that you are working on right now? 
Well, one thing, you know, the central thing that we're working on right now at Vault, you know, directly at the moment is this liquidity management system where, you know, people may be familiar with the die savings rate. You know, so there's a version where people can take their die stablecoin and lock it to get yield. It used to be some yield on it. Now it's it's been one basis point for a long time. But who knows with the bear market, maybe it will go back up. Um, and the idea that a stablecoin could be natively yield bearing. You know, we initially created Vault as the idea of the inflation resistant stablecoin and a you know a hard target on that you know, U.S. consumer price index inflation peg. But what we've realized, of course, is that in some market conditions the risk that's needed to achieve a hard target may be unacceptable. It's a magic number and we need to get rid of it. That doesn't mean that, you know, the goal of the system is still to preserve user value and help create a marketplace where that's possible. But it's just that sometimes it's not up to me to decide that eight and a half percent interest is the right amount at the right risk level. And so creating a way that risk and interest can be priced um, by the users is what's key. Um, so we're working on a way to, to build a compound or AVA style utilization curve into the the stable coin and have concepts of the difference between liquid and illiquid reserves. Uh, you know, the difference between like holding DAI or FEI versus let's say holding, um, you know, for a very simple example, like think about what's the equivalent of USDC for DAI for Volt. It would be like tokenized wrapped treasury inflation protected securities. Uh, you know, uh, these some kind mm -hmm. of a trad fly inflation head in instrument, right? Like let's say there was some tokenized, you know, thing that we could get for that. Um, so some maybe like, you know, that's earning 9%, whatever. So it's like 10% of the PCV is in that, 90% is liquid. And a, a way for the market to choose how that breaks down, um, you know, having all those kind of design features. So that's what's our most proximal thing. Um, the other big classes of problems I see in DeFi today are one, um, the lack of like longer term debt and liquidity management. You know, most DAOs or stablecoin issuers are, or on chain, it's pretty difficult to get longer term borrows only against a very, very narrow range of collateral like ETH only, right? Uh, and even then, the markets aren't very liquid. So, the ability for a stablecoin issuer like MakerDAO to access or give out longer term debt is highly beneficial. Banks, you know, real, real world banks construct a yield curve uh, and have like a management of the liquidity of the underlying things. and. So that seems like a powerful area that will have a ways to go still. Uh, so there's not a huge amount of, of traction. There are some cool projects, but nothing that has had like runaway product market fit yet. And then the other thing for me is, yeah, really cracking the governance nut. I think that token governance is a very thorny thing, especially when the more money is involved. And so really getting that right and checks and balances in the system. Uh, is critical. So one of the things that we're working on for the next Vault upgrade is governance rights to the stablecoin holders. And I was very excited to see the you know, recent Lido proposal along similar lines of putting various checks into the powers of the Lido token on staked ETH. And you know, we like that idea. Like, you know, ultimately in the Vault system, the goal mm -hmm. is that in some way the you know the governance tokens would be able to onboard new yield strategies or or venues and then allocate you know, PCV or, or choose in some kind of a market how that um, is directed. But we would like the vault holders to be able to veto or say no uh, to bad decisions. You know, I don't think it's right to expect stablecoin holders to proactively go and like decide, should we do this or that, you know, or like um, weigh the merits of a highly nuanced governance decisions, but they should at least be able to say like, no, we don't want this. Um, you know, like it's even in governance tokens like Maker, getting participation from the holders is tough. 
Um, so it's not like we expect all stablecoin holders to be super engaged in governance, but giving them, especially the large holders and in a relatively small quorum, the right to veto negative changes is a great security check. So, you know, thinking about those patterns a lot. Yeah, the uh, another thing I learned from uh, Amin Solmani is that if you remove the ability for one party to bully you around, uh, he, he called this a rage quit mechanism out of Moloch DAO, where um, uh, if there was a proposal that was going through uh, and it was accepted by Moloch, the Moloch DAO, uh, they would go into imp- get implemented in seven days. And if you didn't like that and didn't agree with it, you could rage quit without before that proposal was implemented. And so you would remove the ability for anybody who was a whale to who was governing and controlling governance if you just were able to quit, they couldn't bully you, bully you around. And this check on power, it always protects the minority and it gives the minority a voice. Uh, and so I, I think that it's an interesting checks and balances, like uh, checks and balances is definitely the right word, but also at the same time, isn't the goal of this whole uh, bankless future is for having governance minimized things, right? And so like, I think Anytime that there's a vote, I'll, say, I'll take a leaf out of Elon Musk's book and say, uh, he, he says that anytime there's a user input into something, that's, that's an error. And I'll, and I'll say the same thing for governance is anytime there's a vote, that's a bug that we need to remove. Uh, and like, and I don't know how far we can go down by doing that process over and over and over again. Like the bankless, the bankless utopia is literally all the way to the point where there are no votes. Uh, and, and I guess that kind of sounds scary. It's like no votes, like what, like we just are ruled by these algorithms and like, kind of like, uh, so it, I, I want I kind of want to go down that rabbit hole where like, if we do agree that like the idea is that anytime there's a vote, that's a failure we want to do. And we want to establish some like market-based equilibrium algorithm that, t- that removes the need to vote. And we have this future where it's everything on is device completely automated is that the actual utopia that we want or does that actually like lead us down an accidental dystopia well the one so i very strongly agree with the the dangers of of mutable systems mm-hmm. however i think it's a a necessary risk and so we have mm-hmm. to tread you know thread the line where it's going to be very the idea that we're going to today in 2022 create an immutable system that will work forever with no changes is ridiculous right Mm -hmm. um every system that's ever been made has been changed a lot uh ethereum's a lot different than it was when it started bitcoin's a lot different than it was when it started there's nothing that will work without change and be adopted and used long term without change however you can get it so that the procedures for chains are less subject to abuse right and so that's what you said with like the rage quit right things like like Uniswap will make new versions, but vol- migration is voluntary, right? Uh, so like opt-in is a great pattern. Um, there's some things for which that works better than others. And you have to like, um, you know, think about ways that certain like dynamic or lending systems can be safely um, moved over or, and then when, especially when there's a question of like um, protocol controlled value, um, you know, these questions can get a little interesting of how it will work, but I am pretty much in favor of the idea that the smart contracts themselves should be as minimal and as immutable as possible. And then it should be frequent changes and, you know, voluntary migrations, but also the tools to make that relatively easy, um, and simple. Uh, so that's something that we're thinking about now, right? As we're looking at some of the next iteration of the vault system, you know, vault is not immutable or fully decentralized today. Uh, that's certainly the goal but in the first you know almost all DeFi projects today are 
controlled by multi-sigs, and even the ones that are controlled by token governance, you know, a small number of whales in the core team have enormous influence. There's a few that have really gone the extra mile and attained, you know, distributed and effective centraliz- decentralization. And you can see this when the founder tries to push things around and they don't work. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's only a couple instances like that. Compared to like L1 projects like Ethereum, there's a long way to go for um, pretty much all of DeFi. Um, but I've definitely been reflecting a lot, looking at like the things that went too immutable too fast, in my opinion, and then... Well, let me take one step back. Once people just need to be a little more careful launching tokens for things Um, and like launching a token for an immutable thing and then having the team only have like a whatever few year vest is very questionable in my opinion. Um, It's just like at the end of the day, the incentives are not there for new versions to be made that use the same token. Um, So that's kind of a problem, but that's almost like separate from these like core mechanism questions that I'm trying to, you know, the harder problems to figure out. But I think that it's important to make sure that um, incentive alignment is there. Um, And in the case of something like MakerDAO, right, it's obvious that the incentive alignment would be there, even if they were to build a successor to die. You know, they've already built Psy. It seems crazy to think that there might be a third one right after Psy and die, but but maybe there could be, who knows? Um, And if they did that and built a whole new entire system, um, that was voluntary migration, they could do that and they have the infrastructure needed to keep teams working and building on it, right? And that's like credibly neutral and trustworthy and you can, can count on that. When it's like everything is built by some kind of a centralized labs entity, but they're still trying to pretend it's fully decentralized, you're, you have to wonder a little bit, um, <laughs> you know, throwing a small amount of shade on Uni. I think they're great builders, but it's, sometimes it's like, you know, I just feel a little weird when I see like Uniswap's Labs Ventures doing big investments when the uni token is like holders are kind of in the dark about what's going on. Um, so transparency is big for me. And that's, you know, like, I think transparency should almost precede decentralization and that first of all, like who are these people who are supposed to decide, right? When you give the tokens out, like, um, Ethereum is not decentralized in the sense that like all the ETH holders have to decide how it works, right? Um, that would be kind of ridiculous. Um, however, they are able to opt in or out very readily. Um, and, the kind of like peers, those who can run the clients of the network can all opt in or choose, right? And it's the majority consensus of the people who really like care and have skin in the game uh, effectively decides the fate of the network. And that's pretty good, robust decentralization, uh, about as good as you can get. Uh, and it's very hard in my view to get there with t- token voting system. And so these things need to be thought about very carefully and not rushed into is one of the things that I've been realizing lately is like, I think that over the next couple of years, we'll see really great governance systems design. Um, but we can't expect like expecting products to either be fully decentralized at the first MVP or things to be immutable when they first are created will lead to dead ends. But at the same time, things should not be allowed to scale to excess before they have achieved those goals. You know, and that's one reason that we've done a capped launch on Vault uh, and will not be like, you know, significantly allowing the supply to grow until the core issues are ironed out and it's more hardened as far as changes. Um, but I do think it's also there is a need for experimentation and that's where like these debates about like regulation or what should be allowed like there is a great need for experimentation and just freedom and sandbox to do whatever you want but i think there's also a room for industry standards of responsibility and things like i think a big lesson we can draw from this bull market is you probably shouldn't do like uncapped public launches of a lot of types of experimental (laughs) financial products Uh, (laughs) it it can lead to trouble um now 
probably shouldn't doesn't mean should be illegal. And, you know, but mm-hmm. it's still like it causes trouble. And so it's wise to think carefully about, you know, these are the types of lessons I've drawn. I think MakerDAO, again, is like, I keep pointing to them as like my golden favorite example of a, a stable coin issuer and like the place to look of MakerDAO's culture is if a change is going to happen, like it needs to be so thoroughly justified and there's all these stakeholders who are going to weigh in and that bias against change, like, yeah, you know, let me, I'll tell a little, when, when rocketry got started uh, in California and like the people who would eventually go on to found JPL were just sneaking outside of Caltech and firing off rockets in the canyons when no one lived around. Um, like that experimentation was good. It was also good that now, like today in the aerospace field, there are such strict standards for software security, right? Like far more than for any DeFi project. You know, I have a fr- friend who worked at JPL and it's like they have entire separate teams working on the tests and the code. And the people who write the code haven't even touched the test. And at the end, it all has to work perfectly, right? And it's like they have everything so specified and so many eyes on it. External firms where like even almost the best in the business. It's like, oh, we had two audits, you know, by these two big name firms. It's like, well, that sounds great. But like when was the last time like Av or Compound checked an audit on one of their collateral tokens and what governance changes have been going on? Like even at this moment, there's like a bunch of collateral tokens on Avra or Compa where if a malicious change went through, they could just infinite mint or something and and rug. You know, there's so many buried risks. Um, and so that's why I respect MakerDAO a lot being like, no, you like very few collaterals per asset collateral caps, keeping them very small, getting rid of things. Um, so those types of choices um, and also just a completely open and transparent decision-making process. Um, that's what's so good about DeFi. Like, you can see everything that happens on chain and it's even better if the decisions are all out in the open. And so that's something, you know, it's hard for small projects because at the end, there's only so many people who care or understand, <laughs> you know, and you have to just, you know, it's a small team who's figuring things out. But um, as things grow, making sure all of those those rails are laid out and transparency is super huge. And I'm very, I'm going on another little tangent here, but I'm very much an enthusiast and proponent, although we haven't implemented these things at Vault yet of like decentralized front ends and informatics hosting, you know, like decentralized subgraphs or um, IPFS based um, distribution of sites. You know, there's a lot that DeFi products can do to just the simple fact of like making the site, the front end an immutable link. Um, like front end security is such a can of worms too. Like there's so many things that need to be carefully minded. Um, so you, after all of the like heady days of the, the last year, I've definitely taken a long look at like just how deep a rabbit hole true security really is and what it means to have a security culture. And that, you know, I really admire like the Ethereum core devs and their process. And so DeFi needs to learn from like these robust decentralized existing orgs. I think MakerDAO and like all core devs and they, they are, the Ethereum culture is really strong and that's what DeFi needs to not get lost in. And you know, sometimes move fast and break things is good, but sometimes the Ethereum instinct of no, slow down and contemplate um, is a good one. Uh, slow down and contemplate and make sure it's really designed the right way for the long term and decide everything based on the best long term principles, not based on short term opportunism or incentives. So, I mean, I'm 100% in alignment. Uh, with the other property about MakerDAO that I, I definitely admire is that, and this became super obvious right after the Terra collapse, is that the growth of MakerDAO lags demand 
or at least the di- the growth of dye supply lags demand. Whereas like UST was minted in a growth strategy. It's like, we'll mint, we'll mint all these tokens so that we can go like do things like mint the tokens so people can have the tokens, like mint the money. Uh, and then all of a sudden, like it fell over. Uh, dye supply is the opposite of where like it only grows if there's sustainable long-term dye demand pushing up the dye price on the secondary market, creating a, an incentive to mint new dye. And so this constraint on how fast this thing grows is what makes it and protects it and makes sure that it's always going to be stable. Uh, and so like using these principles, same thing with like Ethereum block space too, right? Like Ethereum block space is so constrained, yet it actually has gone literally 10x in supply since 2015 when Ethereum first got started. Uh, and so like the Ethereum block space supply has grown 10x, but everyone feels like that is this Ethereum scaling is going so slow because if we juiced up the block space supply, like it would turn into Solana and then it would crash. Uh, and so these ethos of like constraining growth while we are in a hyper growing environment, like constraining growth is probably pretty okay. Like, yo, we're going to be fine. We're still going to grow. Um, so, so Kirk, I, I, I want to, we, we touched on it a little bit, um, but I want to just like formally go down the Volt rabbit hole. Uh, let's start from the very beginning. Like what is Volt and how have you applied all these principles that we've talked about so far in the podcast to, to building Volt? Let me quickly run through like three visions of Volt. Uh, the, cause and there was a time when Volt was actually going to be a fork of rye. That's because I really admire the controller model. And the idea was that Vault was going to be a Rye fork focused on long-tail DeFi asset lending. This is a very bull market idea. Back when you were getting like 20 to 50% rates and fees you know, on long-tail DeFi tokens um, and thinking that that would be a very you know, effective way to do an inflation-resistant stablecoin with a floating price but targeting the inflation rate return. Uh, so offering a lower borrow rate than maybe people were already paying for those long-tail assets but more return to the users. Um, we ended up moving away from that just because of kind of the complexity of the Rye implementation, and it's really made to be immutable and just be ETH. Uh, it wasn't, you know, the kind of more scalable and modular thoughts that we were looking for wasn't um, there, although I admire the, the team and the design of it a lot. So we moved away from that to a, the die-like model, right, with the, the PSM and also, you know, thinking that lending would be a, this major component of it, directly issuing Vault through Fuse. And the, and what I think is the, the, the bad part about this model is that, like you said, the magic numbers, you know, and I had always intended to make it more market-based in various ways, but as the market conditions have changed, you know, I think we've come to understand that it's not necessarily destiny that on-chain yields will always be super high. You know, they won't necessarily always be more than TradFi yields. And while there are those higher yields out there, they require you to move significantly farther on the risk curve. And so that's what's inspiring me to think about some significant changes versus the current Vault V1. So, you know, Vault V1 is live today. And, you know, just, um, and it is a very Fay like stablecoin because ultimately we did not issue any Vault as direct debt issuance as part of the V1 MVP. So it's just minted through a PSM. And realizing that having like, in the early stage of the project, the team, it's not desirable for us to manually make yield decisions, especially risky yield decisions, right? That's the exact opposite of what the a DeFi project should be doing. Uh, and the goal is to create a, what we have realized we need is a feedback mechanism where the vault holders can say, you know, this is the, um, when a vault holder says, I either want to hold more vault or I want to get out, 
the system needs to take that information and accept that feedback and say, okay, vault holders are leaving the system, so we need to adjust the rates accordingly, or, oh, we're minting more vault. And there's various things you could adjust. Like you can adjust the actual yield rate that the vault is earning. You can also adjust a mint fee. Um, you know, so like when there's very, very high demand to mint, you can do like equivalent of an auction, right? And you're you essentially with this yield bearing type of stable coin. So there's thoughts to think about there, like when you are expanding the supply, how do you do it in efficiently and as fairly as possible? Because um, it will be capped at first. And then at what point do you judge it safe to expand beyond the guarded launch? But the, um, I'll just kind of sketch through how I would envision the next step of Vault working, which is that there will be a, you know, the system will have a concept of, let's say, first of all, let's say there's a, a stable coin can have both liquid and illiquid backing. So for DAI, the liquid backing is USDC. The illiquid backing is the loans of DAI. You know, so if you've borrowed DAI against ETH, MakerDAO cannot redeem that instantly unless they do emergency shutdown. They have to wait for you to repay. They can jack up their rates, but maybe you don't care. Um, and so, especially if you think that DAI is going to go further, like below peg, um, or like something's happening, like there, there could be just being able to change the rates alone does not guarantee that those things will be redeemed. Uh, and so you can categorize it roughly as liquid and illiquid backing. And for Vault, we're thinking the target liquid backing ratio should be determined by a market process. You know, this is similar to how Frax has a collateralization ratio, but Vault would still be over collateralized, uh, you know, by PCV. But uh, how that was allocated would be based on this liquid or illiquid reserve. At first, it would be 100% liquid, probably. Uh, and then just with depositing into other decentralized on-chain yield venues, whether that's off or compound, um, you know, a certain menu of them and, and optimizing the liquid yield rate. And so that liquid yield rate would be like the minimum that the vault holders would earn. And then you can say a portion of the funds within the protocol could then be available to go into less liquid or riskier yield venues. So that could be as simple as like, you know, in let's say the protocol is 99% backed by, um, you know, or let's say the vault protocol has, you know, $100 of circulating vault, and then they have, you know, $99.07 of stable coins and three cents or and like five cents of ETH. Uh, you know, like just a tiny percent, you know, 1% uh, volatile backing, right? Or it could be that tokenized, you know, you know, yield bearing instrument from off chain, or it could be an on chain loan, like a DAO to DAO loan, uh, a porter, a bond to a DAO. Let's, let's say a 7% fixed rate loan to a DAO that expires in six months. Um, and the mechanisms by which that those could be added will also have to be designed and I term that process market governance is the, like what I like to say for this whole theme. And, you know, things where I think it's very, maybe we could talk a little bit about governance token design. I think it's very important that governance tokens have skin in the game along with their decision making. So you can look at like a lot of governance tokens today, we have kind of tragedy. I, there's a few common classes of problems. I'd say one is tragedy of the comments. This is what we see with a curve and other VE style emissions tokens where, you know, I take the best bribe I can get and I vote for that pool. And who cares if that is actually good for the underlying DAO or its revenues, I'm just profit maxing for myself. And I capture a spread on how much I'm dumping on the other holders versus how much I'm getting bribed. Uh, you know, so that has significant issues. Then with just token voting, it's like majority rules. And if you, if you feel like you're part of the major minority, it's like, why even bother, especially if it's a unpopular decision and people will know what you're voting for. Um, and 
you have some things that are really cool. Like for example, I like a lot um, like the Ava insurance module where Ava tokens can put skin in the game voluntarily and opt into it to the staking module. And so you can envision things like what if they could stake, but like per collateral token, and then that set what the debt ceiling was for that collateral. And they put skin in the game for that collateral specifically. Um, and so that pattern in general, of like more gradiated or like smooth decision makings where you could stake to like a certain opinion and consequences and rewards associated with that stance, um, I believe will have more effective results. So we have sort of the vision of like, Vault protocol is almost like an abstraction around a compound or AVA where holders put in a stable coin and they don't really care what underlying stable coin it's backed by. It's kind of abstracted away. And the governance token holders borrow those funds and deploy them into yield strategies and they can be liquidated, right? If they lose capital and there's some sort of a, uh, a market-based system and then there's interplay. And that's why I talk about symmetry where the demand from the governance token holders to go and deploy in certain yield strategies is, you know, they'll want to go and pursue the best risk adjusted return. Whereas the vault holders will express their requirements as far as how much they need to be paid to keep their deposits in the system. You know, they'll have this floating curve and hopefully it can all come together symmetrically to offer the, um, well, not hopefully, but rather through significant hard work and ongoing effort will come together to, um, get a fully symmetric stablecoin system that can support a wide variety of different types of like yield activities more than just like what I would call on-chain repo, you know, over collateralized secured lending, but also have other um, types of yield instruments and things. Yeah. The concept of a work token comes to mind. And this was a, a term I remember being thrown around in 2017 about many, many, uh, many, many 2017, I, uh, I guess ICO tokens. Yeah. ICO tokens. I think uh, the augers token was the, the first one I heard this uh, classified as a work token where um, if you, a lot of people just like buy these tokens and like if they buy the right ones and it goes up in price and then they're like, yay. Uh, but like the concept of a work token is that you you put it somewhere in the right box. And if you put it in the right box, then you get the right, you get a reward if you put it in the right box and you have to determine what the right box is. And so Augur as a, as a prediction market, there would be like an Augur market spun up around like the Super Bowl, right? And team A would win the Super Bowl and team B would lose the Super Bowl. And then all the Augur people, all the Augur token holders would come and they would put their uh, rep, their REP tokens, rep for reputation, and they would put it on the side of like team A won the Super Bowl. And then they, they would collect a small fee from uh, the gamblers who were gambling in that market. And the gambling would be denominated in like DAI or ETH or something. So there'd be a fee and then that fee would be shared by all the rep holders that uh, that staked their rep on the outcome of, of a particular event. Now there's many, many, many different marketplaces. Uh, and so like rep was utilized, uh, the rep token was utilized across all these different marketplaces. So it's not like every single person was voting on every single marketplace, but you would go to the, uh, the idea is that you would go to the Augur marketplace and then you would just like, st like stake your rep tokens that you have in the markets that you know what the outcome was, and then you would get a small fee. Uh, and like this was a, a way to get a decentralized oracle onto the system. Sadly, Augur never really took off, but it it made the token holders go do work, and it was kind of like governance over the system. Like Augur Augur governance says that it, like Team A won the Super Bowl, 
And then the token holders would go in and, and like actually move their assets and the value of their assets uh, into this, the right box. And they would be compensated as a proportion of the amount of capital that they put at stake there. And so like if they put, if they put the thing in the, their tokens in the wrong box, they would get penalized. They would get slashed. Uh, and so if you're on, if you're, if everyone, 99% of people said team A won, but you put it in team B, you lose your tokens. Uh, and so there's risk there if you choose the wrong side. Now, maybe listeners are like, well, why would anyone choose team B? It's obvious that team A won. Well, then we start to get into the more gray area types of prediction markets where the market is actually confused. Uh, and so like there's perhaps something where uh, like the outcome of something is, is not totally certain. And so we need to come to like, what, what, what does the wisdom of a crowd think? Uh, like, uh, I can't really think of an example off the top of my head, but you could totally example, think of a, an outcome where like, it's kind of up for interpretation. Like if we're doing the sports metaphor, it's like, all right, was it like, everyone just looked at the film. Was that, was that the football player's foot over the line or not? And like everyone's looking at the film and like everyone's debating like, yeah, it is over the line. It's not over the line. It is over the line. And then row token holders are going to have to go and vote. Like, is it was his foot on the line or not? Uh, and then maybe like 75 percent of people say, yes, it's on the line. Twenty five percent of people say, no, it's not on the line. Uh, and then the 25 percent of people get slashed and the 75 percent of people get the rewards. And then they also get the rewards of the of the our rep tokens that was slashed. So you're rewarding all the people for being right. And uh, the reason why I want to go down this rant is rewarding the people for getting it right is this control theory mechanism that we've been talking about, where the market has this input and it uses it to balance out the actual inputs of the system. Uh, And so if you're talking about like the Volt's governance token, like uh, staking, it's it's like, yes, I believe in this market. Like this is not going to get rugged. The yields here are good. I'm going to stake my capital here. And then the Volt system naturally increases the debt ceiling, the ability to mint uh, and deposit capital into this one particular vault. That sounds like, uh, a self-regulating, marketplace-regulating, low governance overhead, stable coin, yield-bearing stable coin marketplace. Uh, am, I, am I on track here? You're absolutely on track. Okay, cool. Uh, so, but how on earth, maybe this is a, a going down a different rabbit hole, but how on earth do you have, uh, do you find like 8% yield right now uh, to combat inflation on DeFi? And that is the realization we've ultimately come to is that it is not my place to decide whether there is appropriate you know, risk-adjusted return at, at that yield. And as we do due diligence into DeFi yields today, in general, we conclude that they are mispriced as far as risk. You know, Most DeFi yields are not enough to justify the, the, you know, the risk. The yield is not enough to justify the risk that is actually present in the system. Uh, and even well-regarded safe DeFi projects have a lot of governance risks or things that could potentially go wrong with them. Uh, and so there's a lot of care and concern that thought that needs to go into um like composability is huge but you have to be careful you're not just composing risks uh and so the that is the central reasoning behind our need to i think move to a floating rate system with the feedback is you know realizing that for me to say volt will always have eight and a half percent yield um is a dangerous dangerous thing that could lead to the system blowing up and being destroyed uh, under certain conditions and what we'd rather say is that, you know, in the early stage, the team will begin whitelisting, you know, certain yield venues on a basis of most secure first, you know, like existing well-regarded DeFi things. And in the meantime, be designing these mechanisms by which a decentralized process can onboard more yield venues. And we want to 
you know, keep the scale of the system reasonably small like it is now while all these systems get ironed out. And then once they're well in place and have been working in production, we can scale it up more. Uh, and there'll be a parallel effort, I think, to look into real world assets and also um, not just like purely real world, but maybe like what we could call like hybrid um, on-chain, off-chain things. Like, um, you know, you look at Maple Finance, right, is an interesting example where it's kind of like, quote, uncollateralized loans to these market making firms, which should be scary to people uh, in light of the recent 3AC kind of stuff. But, you know, they've they've said everything's fine and I, you know, not trying to throw shade at them, but it definitely is a little spooky to not necessarily know what all of these books of these people are. Um, and so you can envision like maybe a middle ground that's one step more decentralized, like there's a, a special purpose legal vehicle that corresponds to a single borrowing pool, right? And that has very strict rules about what kind of things can be done with the funds. And so I'm interested in both learning about not, you know, not saying that Vault will internalize in-house all of these things too. Like there's lots of projects going on and I've been learning about the the efforts of other real world asset or um, also like on-chain native lending or credit market kind of projects. And so I think it'll be very important over the next like month or two to, um, and I think there's, con oh, here's what I should really put it. I would really encourage listeners to just look at the fact that there's convergent evolution happening among a lot of stablecoin issuers today. And if you go look under the hood at what MakerDAO is planning and what Frax is planning, and when I look into my own head at what I'm planning, there's a lot of the same things going on of stablecoin issuers realizing that, you know, there's only so much demand for liquidity in on-chain repo markets just to leverage up against ETH. Right. And you need to be able to do more nuanced type of lending activities, whether that's like a long-term debt against ETH. Like, I'm sure there's a lot of people who would like to have a one-year long bond on their staked ETH collateral, right? Like that might be a different kind of a deal than I could get liquidated at any time. Uh, so there's like room for more sophisticated lending markets. Um, and so I'm excited to see what develops there that we can integrate with and also to what extent we need to build things ourselves. Uh, but we really did realize at Vault that like, if you're a DeFi protocol and you're in integrating with another protocol, their code is your code. You know, like you need to have read every line, um, not just on your own, but like pair program security reviewed with their team, every single line of code. Uh, and you need to do that again, every time they have a governance change of any kind. And so that's the kind of, and that's the truth, right? Like that's the type of diligence that ought to be done in systems that's handling, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of capital or more. Uh, and again, that's one reason that we're starting small. Uh, you know, there's any new project has limited capacity uh, and we have to be careful and quality over quantity for integration. So we've been doing a lot of deep dives into all of the existing projects. And, you know, I've had a lot of fun. I took Euler protocol for a spin for the first time yesterday, um, trying to, I had it with my nose to the grindstone for so long on Vault. It's nice to look around and see what else has been built and exists today. So these new... Yeah, Euler protocol and interest protocol are the new on-chain, what I would call repo style markets, you know, secured lending that interest me a lot. Uh, of course, there's the classics of Ava and Compound. Uh, and then there's the sort of Ava and Compound style real world asset things like Tin Lake, Goldfinch, Maple Finance. Um, so learning more about that whole landscape and where we can fit in. But I think that Vault will both have its own internal mechanisms and integrate with other platforms. Uh, and I, you know, MakerDAO is the same way, right? Where they're looking to build their own internal real world asset stuff. They also have D3Ms into Ava, other markets. And so these kind of connections, I think will become very robust, but they have to be taken their time with and built very carefully. 
Well, Kirk, I definitely appreciate your perspective in emphasizing uh, the conservative nature as we build out a brand new financial system for the whole entire world. Some conservatism and, and slow moving uh, is uh, perhaps the right vibe, especially as we are coming down off of a bull market where things only move very, very quickly. Um, Kirk, if, if people want to just learn more about Volt and just follow you and, and your other thoughts that you have, where should they go? Yeah. Um, so to learn more about Vault, you can visit us at vaultprotocol.io, and you'll also find links there to our Discord. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter or on Discord, at, and also on Telegram anywhere you like as One True Kirk. Um, you can also uh, email me at Kirk at vaultprotocol.io. Um, yeah, always happy to chat about any DeFi concepts and um, just answer questions. Not limited to Vault, but and also to to learn from others because. To me, the most limiting part of the whole like pandemic period was just being cooped up in a little mm -hmm. box. I got out to my first ever crypto conference for ETH Denver, oh, cool. uh, and I think that taking getting out aside of our, you know, crypto Twitter is a bubble, and even within DeFi, there's little bubbles, right? Uh, and so it's good to go outside that bubble. And so I'm working on that a little bit, um, trying to learn more about like L2 stuff. So you know, Vault launched on Arbitrum mm -hmm. uh, recently, and I'm working on understanding a little bit more about the security and decentralization, like uptime concerns with L2s and how that relates to lending. Um, lots of interesting stuff. Well, Kirk, it sounds like you are becoming an, an expert in every single facet of crypto. So uh, I, I'm glad that uh, I got introduced to you this way by doing a podcast. And I'm going to keep an eye on, on what you're up to and, and where your brain goes. And I think we'll, we will reconvene on the podcast at a later date and time as well. Thank you, David. I really appreciate getting the chance to speak with you. And um, apologies for the connectivity issues on my end. Uh, I'm going to have to Unfortunately, Grandma House Internet has its limitations. <laughs> well, I think we can edit all that out in post, so no worries, Kirk. Uh, thanks, thanks for coming on, my man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, we hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, head over to Bankless HQ right now to develop your crypto investing skills and learn how to free yourself from banks and gain your financial independence. We recommend joining our daily newsletter, podcast, and community as a Bankless Premium subscriber to get the most out of your Bankless experience. You'll get access to our market analysis, our alpha leaks, and exclusive content, and even the Bankless token for airdrops, raffles, and unlocks. If you're interested in crypto, the Bankless community is where you want to be. Click the link in the description to become a Bankless Premium subscriber today. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel for in-depth interviews with industry leaders, Ask Me Anythings, and weekly roll-ups where we summarize the week in crypto and other fantastic content. Thanks everyone for watching and being on the journey as we build out the Bankless Nation.